This is Andy Brewer with the Healthcare Insights Podcast at Northwest AHEC. I have the pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Jamie Ard, who is a professor of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest Baptist Health um, and Wake Forest School of Medicine. He is an undergraduate uh, from Morehouse College, um, got his medical degree at Duke, and says he's always wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you realize that? When did you first think about being a doctor? I don't know. I, th- I think it was one of those things where I just um, sort of always thought like, oh, that that would be cool to, to do. And um, sometimes I think in, in small communities um, where, uh, you know, if, if someone is recognized as being, uh, you know, gifted in terms of uh, aptitude, educational aptitude, people tend to point you in the direction of being a doctor or a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what you're supposed to be. So you had a little push from the community. Then, yeah. You yeah. that feedback. Yeah. Oh, cool. So um, I thought, yeah, I mean, that sounds fine to me. And uh, I like science. I had a, an aptitude for science. And so that was, uh, yeah, that's sort of how I got got that idea in my head, but that's pretty much all I've ever really thought that I would ever do. Now, how did you gravitate towards weight management and solving the obesity problem? Yeah, so that happened early in medical school. Uh, During um, my first year of medical school at Duke, I had the fortune of working with um, a cardiologist named Bob Rosati. Um, He was the director of the Rice Diet Program, and, and people... Um, who are in the Durham area or on the East Coast, for that fact, um, um, will know that name. Um, it was a um, residential weight loss program that had been around for years, um, started in the 40s and 50s uh, during that time by Jack Kempner as a way to help treat hypertension before we had drugs for hypertension. Nowadays, I mean, we've got lots of different treatment options for high blood pressure. But back then, um, if you got what was called malignant hypertension, that was sort of a death sentence, right? I mean, it was just you couldn't control it. Um, you would develop congestive heart failure. You might develop a stroke. You, But, you know, renal failure, you, you would tend to die. And so they developed this uh, treatment strategy that realized um, <clears throat> if people cut out a lot of sodium, out of their diet, basically eat a no sodium diet. So natural foods, um, nothing processed, uh, you know, back then there wasn't much in the way of processed foods and, um, they did so in an inpatient type setting, you know, back then you could bring somebody in the hospital for almost anything and you keep them there and feed them for, um, many days at a time and their blood pressure would get you know, better and they would, you know, reverse, uh, all of the issues that they were having. And they realized like, Hey, by the way, these folks are losing a lot of weight, um, because they weren't eating a lot of calories. They were eating mostly fruit and rice or whole grains basically. And, um, so they said, Hey, you know, this could actually be something that helps, you know, people lose weight. Um, if we apply, apply it more broadly, 
And um, so fast forward, that develops into uh, actually a nice multidisciplinary com comprehensive type of treatment program in a residential type of setting. So you had medical providers who were monitoring patients, um, providing oversight for the treatment plan, but it was a behavioral intervention really designed to help people change their lifestyle in a really intensive way. And so I had the opportunity to observe that and, and actually um, get engaged with the program um, doing a research project during my third year of medical school. And um, I was just fascinated with the idea that, hey, there's something in medicine that you can do that will change a person from head to toe um, in the matter of a few months and something that, you know, really could be accessible to anyone. Right. We all have to eat. Um, we can all be physically active at some level, um, depending on ability. And so. I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. And it was touching on all those things that I was really kind of interested in in terms of chronic diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease and those types of things. And I thought, you know, I'd rather help people get rid of those things than just treat them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that that really kind of sparked my interest. And I went from there. Uh, it, I guess I'm kind of a simple guy. Like I get an idea in my head and I go with it. So mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of, you know, back and forth here or there. Um, so, yeah, I, I sort of said, you know, this is really interesting. And people were just starting to talk about obesity uh, in terms of the population. Um, the first guidelines related to obesity treatment um, were just underway in terms of being developed. And, you know, there was more interest in uh, clinical management of obesity <clears throat> and is as a, you know, disease entity that we know it now. And so that that really was kind of a, um, a really fortuitous um, opportunity for me to get introduced to that um, as a field and as an option in terms of a career. And, uh, yeah, I kind of never looked back from there. Now, is RICE an acronym? No, no, it's... it's Literally RICE. Literally RICE. <laughs> like, that's what, that's what most people were eating, um when they started the program, the way they basically did it is most people were eating a diet of rice and fruit. Um, so in, in over time, it evolved to more of a, what I would think of as a, we would sort of label as a vegan type of vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. Um, so whole grains, um, vegetables, fruit, um, as your primary sources of, of energy. And then over time, you would gradually add in um, more variety and different protein options. Um, you could, you know, stay vegetarian if you wanted to, but you could add in <clears throat> add in other um, options. But the idea was to um, minimize sodium intake. That was always consistent. And you would, um, you know, basically eat a diet that was limited in terms of processed foods, um, low energy dense foods, so bulky foods, high fiber foods. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and it was probably a low fat diet as well. Like it would be considered low fat by, by today's standards um, overall. So was the thinking behind that just uh, the volume and low calorie and satiety um, versus like, because I, I, I just imagine all the keto and paleo people going, no, not rice and fruit. Yeah. We yeah. can't eat that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it sounds so, so anathema to what a lot of people think. Yeah. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, 
cal- calories are the thing that drives the weight loss. Mm-hmm. And so I don't care if you come up with a diet that's all fat or all carbohydrate or all protein. If you eat few enough calories, you're going to lose weight. And um, <clears throat> the strategy in terms of how you do that, um, how you create a sense of fullness and satiation uh, for the individual who's consuming that food um, and manage appetite overall. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably, you know, more individualized. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, yeah, the basic idea behind that type of strategy is bulk. It's Mm -hmm. what's filling you up and keeping you satisfied. So I can eat a large volume of fruit and vegetables um, relative to say, um, something that might be higher fat or, or have more dense calories um, <clears throat> and eat a larger volume but fewer calories. Mm-hmm. And that's going to keep me satisfied even though I'm eating a smaller amount of calories. Our brains don't have a um, calorie thermostat, so to speak, right? So we don't, we don't stop eating just because we reached, you know, X number of calories per day. Um, we tend to stop eating after we've reached a certain volume. Um, and most people, if you graph it out and you, you measure it carefully, most people eat about the same volume of food every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty remarkable, actually. Um, the volume of food that we consume really does not vary widely on a, on a day-to-day basis over time. And so if you, if you understand that concept, then you know you can easily change the number of calories that you're taking in by changing the concentration of calories in that volume. Mm-hmm. So if I eat a high energy dense, you know, diet is, that's what we would call it where the calories are really concentrated. Um, so things like, um, high fat dairy or crackers or pretzels, for example, right? So people think those types of snack foods must, must be reasonable snack options, right? Because, they're low fat and, and they don't seem like they would have a lot of calories in them. Um, but it tends that you end up eating a lot more of that because the volume is low. They mm-hmm. don't have any water. And so water content is really a driver of the volume of food. So if you eat foods that have a lot of water content, soups, salads, uh, vegetables, fruit, um, those types of things, um, beans, legumes, you'll see that volume um, stays with you a little bit longer mm-hmm. versus if you eat foods that, that have less volume, um, again, crackers, pretzels, potato chips, um, some breads and some grains and things like that, you'll you'll find, okay, that doesn't stay with me as long. Mm-hmm. So I've always heard the heuristic of the 80-20 rule when it comes to uh, lifestyle as far as food and activity. So 80% nutrition, 20% fitness is sort of the, the, the motto I've always heard and followed as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people who say, I want to get in shape. It's like, well, watch what you eat and add some activity in that sort of 80, 20 mix is, is, is that accurate or? Yeah, we, we use the same, <clears throat> same sort of, uh, ratio when we talk to patients about what you need to be focused on, but it varies over the course of a particular treatment plan. Um, <clears throat> and very simply, um, if you divide it into active weight loss and then maintenance of weight loss, those are two different physiologic states. 
those are two different um, treatment strategies and treatment goals that you have in mind. So for for active weight loss, yeah, it's 80% of what you're achieving is being driven by what you're eating mm-hmm. um, or not eating, uh, so to speak. So the calories matter and um, it's, you know, largely going to be a function of how many calories you're consuming in a day. And, and if you understand, okay, the number of calories that you can burn is largely going to be fixed based on your metabolism. Your metabolism is a function of your age and sex and um, your genetics. Um, and that's that's something that's really going to be out of your control. And, and that's that's a huge part of the total number of calories that you burn every day. The other part that you do control is the variable amount in terms of your activity level, right? So that's where the 20% comes in in terms of saying, okay, I can be active. I can choose to walk instead of taking the elevator or I can park farther away um, and I can do dedicated exercise. So exercise is different than just being active. Mm-hmm. Exercise means I'm, I'm doing a repetitive motion and doing it for the intent and purpose of getting my heart rate up and burning calories or, or strengthening certain muscle groups, et cetera. So that, that, that piece of it is is certainly under your control and you, and you can do that, but there's a limit, so to speak, to the number of calories that you can effectively burn that leads to a, a real contribution to your weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that 80-20 works during the weight loss, but when you get into maintenance of weight loss, it starts to flip. <clears throat> so I usually use a ratio of about 40 to 60. So 40% is about food in maintenance of weight loss and 60% is about exercise. So in that maintenance phase, your body is going to want to return back to where, where it was, where you were previously. Your brain doesn't know that you tried to lose weight on purpose. It thinks that you just went through a famine mm-hmm. and your brain is programmed to keep you from starving, keep you from wasting away, right? Mm-hmm. There's no one who evaporates, right? Our, our brains slow our metabolism down and, and kick in a lot of different processes that keep us from just wasting away mm-hmm. when we are in a low-calorie environment. So <clears throat> in that type of setting, what you have to do to maintain your weight loss is actually feed yourself more, um, so you, you, you go from the number of calories that you're eating to lose weight, you start actually adding calories back, but you also increase your level of physical activity at the same time. And that sort of calms your brain down and says, okay, there's no problem here. we got plenty of calories around, but we're also being more active and we're using that energy, um, in a way that your body is happy with that, right? We're, we're, machines that are designed to be more active than sedentary yeah in our environment has just evolved to make us sedentary unless we you know do things consciously to stay active so we we would prefer our natural state is to be a more active high volume eating um type of situation Mm -hmm. and and if if people can move to that in maintenance of after losing weight then they can be more successful Mm -hmm. so that's when the physical activity really actually you we want people to really just sort of take the lid off and 
yeah, be as active as you want. 200 minutes of exercise time per week is really kind of what we, you know, think about, or at least a 20% increase over what you were doing when you were losing weight. Um, and that, that's the way we tend to think about that, you know, in terms of the proportion of food versus activity. Now, is there a uh, clinical definition for exercise? I've always told my kids that, um, you know, how much are you exercising this week and not just like you were jumping around while you're playing the PS4 or something, but, (laughs) you know, actually getting your heart rate up to maximum for a sustained 20 minutes. That's how I always defined Mm -hmm. exercise as a base level. Is that, is that hold true? So, so the, the definition of exercise is evolving. Um, so yeah, it used to be all about how long did you sustain your heart rate elevation? Um, and it had to be, you know, in 10 minute increments at least in order to count as exercise. And more recently in the past couple of years, um, the guidelines have stated that, well, actually any, you know, bout of, activity that gets your heart rate to an elevated level and and you sustain it for even a few minutes counts. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, a lot of days people have an activity tracker or something, right? And and you'll, you know, be able to capture your heart rate and you'll start to see like during the course of the day, if you decide, hey, I'm going to, I got to walk from my office to the parking lot, but I'm going to do it in a power walk kind of pace, right? Not just a leisurely stroll and get my heart rate up. You might get a minute of, you know, what might count as real, you know, sort of moderate activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that counts, mm-hmm. right? That counts as exercise time. Um, the other thing that we often talk to people about is they'll, they'll confuse being active at work with like, well, that must mean I am getting some exercise. And Usually what we try to do is we we try to talk about it as leisure time, physical activity. So what are you getting outside of the confines of work? So if you work as a nurse, for example, and you're on your feet all day and on a daily basis, you get an average of 8000 steps just because you're on the floor and walking around. That's good. Right. That's great. Um, but that's not exercise. Right. Right. Your body gets accustomed to that. That's just sort of what you do on a day to day basis. And exercise has to come above and beyond that mm-hmm. um, in order to really be able to create some kind of change uh, from a fitness standpoint or a body composition standpoint. So it's important to sort of understand, yeah, I can be active during the day, but that doesn't quite count as exercise if that's part of my normal routine. Right. So you have to get some higher intensity mm-hmm. involved. Yeah. yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You you know, I listened to a podcast you were on, I think it was Best Health. And uh, so you actually get patients that come in that are just morbidly obese, I guess. And, and, and then you, you put them on a, a food vacation, you know, the, the OptiFast. Mm-hmm program it was described as and so there was a a goal of 50 or more pounds of weight loss so tell me about how um how that works and how how responsive or how uh patients respond to that and how you know and and is it a wake-up call for them or how how, what's the mindset that they come in Mm. from that i mean did were they referred by their primary care said look you know, th- this is not sustainable. You got to do something now. And, and we, we got a place in, in, in lieu of, say, bariatric surgery. Yeah. You know, this is a, a plan we can get you on. 
Yeah. So I, I think if, if we if we sort of start at you know, so where are people coming from? Um, a lot of our patients come from lots of different places. Um, certainly, referrals from their primary care provider um, or even a specialist. Um, so we we work with a lot of patients, say from the orthopedic clinic, who need to lose weight in order to get their joint replaced. Um, or we work with patients who have uh, a diagnosis of fatty liver that come from the hepatology clinic, and they need to lose weight to resolve the fatty liver. So they can come from lots of different places because of um, a health-related concern, um, or they're just they're just interested in like you know you said I want to I want to change the trajectory here. My quality of life is not good. I'm you know got chronic pain or. Um, I was just talking to one of my patients yesterday, and, and he said one of the things that sparked him to to refer himself, we do self-referrals, is um, his fa- family went on a trip to Yosemite, and um, they got to the base <clears throat> of the hike, and he had to sit, right? He couldn't go. He mm-hmm. couldn't go up the mountain. Um, and he said, I was sitting around with all the other people who couldn't, you know, do the, the hike. And I realized, like, I don't want to be that guy. Right. I'm, you know, in my early 50s and I want to enjoy these times with my family. But I, I don't want to be left behind just because I'm out of shape. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, we, we get patients from lots of different places. And it, and it ranges from folks who have um, early stage one obesity. So we think about it as a disease and we say, you know, this is a patient who has this disease, We, you know, who has obesity, um, either stage one, stage two, stage three. So stage three would be what we would have, you know, in the past called morbid obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about it as severe obesity. So in terms of the, the severity of the disease, so to speak. Um, and when, when people have... Um, that, you know, disease, when they have the disease of obesity, you know, there are lots of different manifestations of that. Um, and so not every pa- patient comes in with, you know, they might have a BMI of 40, I might have five people with a BMI of 40, but not all of them are going to be the same nor require the same treatment plan. They may all require very different treatment plans. And so OptiFast is one of those treatment plans that we have. And it's unique in that it provides people with a chance to really sort of change their relationship with food in a way that a lot of our other treatment strategies don't. Um, so imagine this, imagine you, um, we're drinking coffee today, right? And imagine you, you know, have a problem with drinking coffee. Like you just drink coffee all the time. It's, you know, your thing. Um, you, you wake up in the morning, you're drinking it. You go to bed at night, you're drinking it. You're describing me now. (laughs) And so you decide, Hey, I'm going to, I got to figure out a way to, you know, sort of back off of drinking coffee. I'm, I'm spending way too much money on coffee, and I think about coffee way too much, and and I need to do that. So if if that's your problem, if you feel like, okay, I got to change my relationship with coffee, um, you got a couple different options, right? You can say, well, I'm just not going to drink coffee. I'm going to just go cold turkey. I'm going to just not drink coffee at all, uh, or I'm going to switch to tea. I'm going to drink something else. I'll do an alternative. But you've got those options. You could even say, well, I'm just going to try to cut back on coffee. Um, but that might be hard. Like Most people would admit that trying to do a little bit of something that they find really addictive, so to speak, um, is hard to do. Right. Mm-hmm. It's either got to be a kind of all or nothing type of thing. 
Now, imagine if we, we said instead of coffee, that's food. Mm-hmm. You have trouble with, you know, all kinds of food. It's not just junk food. It's not just um, fast food. It's not, you know, things that you'd be think of, quote unquote, as bad. Um, it could be, you know, a really nice, healthy salad, but you tend to, you know, overdo it or you find that you're, you know, eating breakfast and planning lunch, not in a good way, but in a more mm. like, oh, I'm dreaming about this food type of thing. I can't wait to get to whatever it's going to be. So in that kind of situation, you can you, you would say, OK, well, what's your alternative? Well, it's eat less of that food and that might not be good enough. Right. You don't have a like cold turkey option um, for food. And so that's where a strategy like OptiFast comes in, where it provides your nutrition as a meal replacement. And the meal replacement, basically, the OptiFast product is complete nutrition. And, you know, when when done is full meal replacement, what we call total meal replacement, provides all of your nutrition. So you don't have to think about food and and engage with food, um, at least for some period of time. And then that makes it easier. That Mm -hmm. makes it easier for people to just sort of wrap their heads around like, okay, this is how I was dealing with food. And in, in the future, I need to be thinking about it differently. And I'm going to begin working um, on the behaviors and skills that I need in order to re-engage with food um, in a in a better way, mm-hmm. um, in a way that's better for me. And that's going to help um, in the early going get the weight loss started um, because you are cutting calories and you're you know d- providing structure and there's a lot of behavioral support. There's medical monitoring with that. Um, we're helping people you know start to engage in some physical activity as well. And then over time, we're going to gradually reintroduce food in a way that is better designed for you to help you continue losing weight as well as maintain your weight loss long term. Mm-hmm. So that's the the basic concept of the OptiFast program. And, yeah, we like to say, you know, it's, it is sort of like taking a vacation from food for a little while mm-hmm. and you get a chance to just sort of regroup um, instead of having to feel like, you're always struggling with the substance that is the, you know, sort of cause of your, your challenges. Um, and that can, that can really sort of give people some confidence to feel like, Hey, all right, I can do this, can get a better handle on this and, and start to regroup around, you know, sort of how I think about food. So the relationship people have with food has to be very complex. I mean, it's very personal. Um, And and as you talked, I I saw a lot of similarities or I hear a lot of similarities between food and say, well, it could be opioids or it could be benzos Mm -hmm. or whatever, alcohol or whatever, Mm -hmm. smoking. So how, you know, you mentioned behavioral health aspect, how much counseling and coaching and can you describe a little bit how that plays into it? Yeah. So, we have the um, great fortune of having a multidisciplinary team as a part of our, our center. And that includes a really strong behavioral health team. And um, that's you know folks who have degrees in psychology and uh, licensed counselors um, who, you know, really understand how, how our brains work in terms of, the decision processes and in the interaction with mental health and and the choices that we end up making or how we're influenced and 
and the integration, we were able to integrate that into the biology of, you know, all these other things that are going on that may, you know, ultimately determine um, how you end up making some of the choices that you make and why your brain respond, responds the way that it does to certain stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a really complex sort of issue. And, and I think a lot of times people have, um, have faced the problem of obesity from a very simplistic point of view of, well, I just need to eat less and exercise more. Right. And that becomes a personal discipline issue. And it's not that, Right. It is it is not a personal discipline issue. Um, people want to to not have to deal with overweight and obesity. People want to have better quality of life. And, and it's not an issue of, you know, how badly do you want it? Um, a lot of times it's an issue of my mental health issues are keeping me from being able to be as successful as I need to be. Um, or I have some cognitive uh faulty pathways in terms of my reasoning and rationale that's a result of maybe past trauma or um, adverse experiences in childhood that, you know, have shaped the way I see the world. Mm-hmm. And all those things then tend to have an impact on food and in my relationship with food and, and my body. Um, <clears throat> so um, our behavioral health team helps us really sort of sort through a lot of those issues, helps us um, understand the individual patient, where they're coming from, and what are the types of treatments and strategies that we need to deploy to help them navigate, you know, where they are and get them to a better spot. And and a lot of that is coaching and, you know, good old behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, a lot of that is going to be helping people understand, you know, their triggers in the environment and giving them better, you know, communication skills to, you know, talk to support, you know, networks about what they're doing and how they're going to do it. Um, so it, it ranges a, a, is a wide variety of different uh, things that we help patients with uh, from a behavioral health standpoint, but it's really critical um, because, again, if if we take a really simplistic view of just eat less and exercise more and, and be more disciplined, then, you know, 99% of us would, you know, tend to fail at that. Yeah. Well, I, I've talked with uh, Dr. Skelton, you know, they do mm-hmm. the Renner Fit program for childhood obesity prevention and, you know, the children don't have agency as mm-hmm. much as, so yeah. they have to approach it uh, in a very holistic way and mm-hmm. involve the family. So it is a complex issue. And I loved your self-referral example about, you know, the man finding his goal was mm-hmm. to get to the mountaintop, to mm-hmm. be able to climb that on his own. And I think helping people find their mountaintop is, yeah. is, is is the motivation to start, you know, something to grasp hold of and, mm-hmm. and, and get them to keep that in mind because we often lose sight of those reasons why we want to do it. We know we have to do it or we need yeah. to do it yeah. to, to improve our quality of life, but to have something very tangible that we want to be able to do. So hopefully that person will go back to Yosemite and say, let's do this hike. I'm ready. Yeah. yeah no, he's, he's well on his way. Actually. He's, he's already lost like 70 pounds and he's doing things that he said he couldn't do a year ago in terms of his fitness um, and exercise training. And, you know, and we talk a lot about those, what we call non-scale goals, non-scale victories. Um, what are the things aside from the fact that you've lost some weight and you see a change on your, on the, on the weight in the number, 
Um, what else are you able to do um, that you couldn't do before? What are you, you know, getting rid of that you don't need anymore, right? I've got people who say, well, I don't need my cane anymore because my knee doesn't hurt as bad and I can walk better. And um, <clears throat> people getting rid of their CPAP machines because they don't have sleep apnea anymore or getting rid of medications or they're seeing, you know, just general improvement in energy levels and, you know, vitality that they thought was just gone forever because they thought, well, I'm just I'm just older now. And this is must be what life has to be like um, because I'm, you know, older, um, not realizing like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it can be very different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we spend a lot of time talking about and, and dialing into those motivations um, for what is it that you want to accomplish as a result of losing weight? And that's what, you know, continues to drive you to make those lifestyle changes and keep them in place because um, that's fragile, right? If you if you don't stick with those lifestyle changes and if you don't stick with your treatment plan, then, yeah, you can find yourself very quickly going back in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to switch gears a little bit. I, I've read and I've, you know, this food nutrition and exercise and all this is very, you know, very, in, a, a large interest of mine. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about it many times on this podcast. So mm-hmm. listeners who have followed it probably are like, Oh God, here we go. But, uh, one of the things I've been following, or at least peripherally, is the the relationship between the gut biome and the brain and mm-hmm. that feedback. Is there, you know, w- what kind of advances are we finding? I mean, we, we've got things like genetic or genomic mapping, so we can understand personalized mes- medicine, and then we mm-hmm. could measure what flora is in the gut and how that plays. Are there advances going on there that would, you know, I... I heard a grand rounds recently about fecal transplantation for you know curing c difficile and stuff like that so are are there advances that would allow us to like you know take something that would change our gut flora and then it would communicate with the brain hey we're gonna we're we're healthier right like that right (laughs) so in short we're not there yet um and i think yeah there's there's a lot of interest there's there's probably not a meeting that i um, you know, don't go to where it's, you know, some group of national experts or, or some other conference or whatever, where the microbiome doesn't come up. Right. And, and everybody's really sort of talking about this. And I think it's, you know, kind of a really interesting next frontier in obesity medicine and understanding that relationship between the gut and the brain and, you know, basically the, the primary inhabitant of the gut, which is the, the bacterial flora that live there and, and are symbiotic, you know, with us um, in the right, you know, in the right uh, proportions. Um, the question is, what role does that, you know, microbiome then play in terms of energy balance and your propensity towards weight gain or weight loss? Um, is it is it through an interaction with the nutrients that you consume, right? So there there have been papers and research around, say, non-nutritive sweeteners or artificial sweeteners, for example, in the microbiome. And, and what does that do to, you know, sort of enhance or alter insulin resistance, for example? And then might that then lead to an increase in central weight gain and pot- potential for diabetes and all these types of things. So some really intriguing kind of questions and, and preliminary results in animal models and um, those types of things. Um, 
I, I still think that based on what we know right now, there's not enough that's there to say, oh, yeah, we should be telling people to take this probiotic or, you know, take this, you know, you know, sign up for this fecal transplant, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> like we're, we're just not not there yet. And um, <clears throat> a lot of what I think we, you know, sort of know and understand uh, about, you know, the the microbiome um, still is going to come back to, you know, being able to maintain some level of quality intake, right? Some level of food intake that that is of higher quality of still, you know, you know, uh, calorie balanced, isocaloric um, sort of intake, um, in addition to some, you know, balanced physical activity type of program. And, and the microbiome may be a factor or an agent in that, but in common obesity, in the common obesity sort of complex, um, that disease state, um, for the majority of people, that may be a small contributor to the, you know, sort of overall state, mm-hmm. um, for the, for the individual in terms of what you actually end up seeing is the phenotype. Yeah. Well, it certainly wouldn't, I don't think change the reasons people have an unhealthy relationship with food based on, like you said, past trauma or, yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. Cause and, that, that, you know, that's an interesting point, right? Is that a lot of what we know about the microbiome is extrapolated from a lot of animal studies is, is a lot of basic science, you know, starts with the animal models, um, in terms of in vivo studies. And so, um, when you go from an animal model, like a rodent to a human, the, the missing piece there is the psychology, right? The human experience. Exactly. Right. And so, um, you know, there have been studies in, in rodents that show, yeah, with a fecal transplant, you can take mice that have a propensity towards obesity and then they have obesity and, and put the fecal, you know, transplant in, um, or, or from lean mice and put it into mice with obesity and you'll see the mice with obesity get lean. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, and that's just, it just happens naturally without any other type of intervention. And that, that gets people pretty excited. Um, but you know, also my guess is if you were to stress those rats, put them in stress conditions and introduce them to, um, high fructose corn syrup. I was going to say, make them watch McDonald's ads all day. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, give them Oreos that are crushed up in their chow. (laughs) Then my guess is they would overeat that. Right. Cause those, those substances have some reward or it provides some sort of neurochemical Mm. stimulus that. Um, is rewarding or, or satisfying or calming, especially if you're in a stressful, you know, situation. Like you can induce animals to, to, you know, like recreate like a binge eating kind of scenario by creating, you know, an environment that's stressful plus access to really highly palatable foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and animals will consume that in the same way they would do, you know, cocaine, um, in terms of the addictive potential of that. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think, you know, in that kind of context, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll learn a lot about the, the microbiome and its impact, um, in terms of what's happening in the gut and how nutrients are absorbed and that type of thing. But, um, we will also still need to think about the rest of the body and the, the brain in, in particular, um, not just the, you know, sort of metabolic homeostasis and, and biology 
around um, energy control, but the, the psychology of, of what drives eating behaviors too. So you mentioned stress. When you, your patients come to you, how much uh, outside factors other than food do you, mm. I mean, I, we talked about the behavioral health aspect, you know, how, how do you help them cope with those things outside of their immediate control yeah. you know, when it comes to food? Because I know I stress eat and, mm-hmm. and, you know, things like that. I'm sure people with, with really bigger problems with, with their relationship with food have you know, use those stressors as an excuse or as a a, a, a uh, reason to 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 overconsume. Let's say, yeah, yeah. So what we try to do is um, focus on putting in replacement behaviors um, that can be helpful, but still get the same result that the patient is seeking. Right. So if when I'm stressed, I tend to go to the M&M jar and, you know, run through the M&M jar way faster than I should. Um, I do that because there's a certain reward or feedback that happens that makes me feel a certain way and, and it's reinforcing, right? So if it, if it didn't work to some extent, then I wouldn't do it. Right. If the jar were filled with, with broccoli, right, you, cha- <laughs> you you kept everything else the same. The jar is filled with broccoli. I would probably try the broccoli and then I'd be like, that's not getting it. And I'm not going to go back to that. Mm-hmm. Right. I just I just won't eat that because it's not nearly as rewarding as the M&Ms. Right. So um, what we have to do when we work with patients is instead of just saying, well, hey, don't eat the M&Ms. We've got to give them something else to do in place of that when they feel that way, right? So when the stimulus occurs, whether it's the, you know, argument with the spouse or the tough day at work or, you know, an anxiety-provoking, you know, presentation, um, whatever it is, when the stimulus occurs, we've got to put in some alternative things that can be a substitute for that previous behavior. Otherwise, we'll never extinguish that behavior because that person is looking for a solution to what it is that's causing them that feeling. Um, and so sometimes even it's just like, okay, understanding, like that feeling is okay. Mm-hmm. That feeling is not the end of the world. I'm not about to die. And realizing that and, and thinking through like, yeah, just because I had a bad, you know, experience when I was in fifth grade with doing an oral presentation doesn't mean that every time I get ready to do an oral presentation it's going to go that badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and so I can be okay with that and process that in in a different way. And then I can practice some breathing exercises. I can walk to get rid of some of that nervous energy, those types of things. And then I'll be okay. And I don't have to have the pre, you know, presentation candy bar. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The intention is good. I want to make myself feel better, but mm-hmm. the behavior, yeah. the M&M's probably not the best go-to. Yeah, it's, it's what we would say is maladaptive, right? It's, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a behavior that you uh, adopt that does something for you um, in terms of protecting you or rewarding you, but it's not the consequences of that are not helpful um, yeah. at the in the long run. So I know what I was going to ask. Um so anecdotally, I've noticed uh, that 
every year I take my family at the beginning, you know, Memorial Day weekend, we go to Wet and Wild, which is the the big splash park, water park in Greensboro. Mm -hmm. And been doing that for, I don't know, eight years or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't go this year for some reason. We went to the beach instead. But, um, you know, seven years ago, I was like amazed at how many large obese people I would say mm-hmm. were there and you know they're there letting it all hang out and over the years like last year I noticed you know it was something I really noticed that there were fewer obese people I was like wow you know if if this was any measure of the state of the health of the community you know it's improving so that's just my anecdotal in evidence but certainly not scientific is the state of this open uh, obesity epidemic because we've heard about it for years it's like all oh, americans getting so fat and mm-hmm. uh, is it improving overall or are we you know is there any plateauing or is it just keep getting worse so in general i would say no it's not improving <laughs> i say you you might have um you might have had a bias sample that day mm-hmm. um but in, in the statistics seem to suggest that um on average for adults, the rates of obesity are still, you know, north of 35% uh, on average. Mm. And in some communities, it's worse. Um, so in minority communities, African-American communities, Hispanic communities, um, the prevalence of obesity is much higher. Um, you get down to subgroups like African-American women, um, where you see rates of overweight and obesity. If you combine that, the two nearing 80 plus percent wow so um no this it's it's not we we've not solved anything um the the environment is largely worse not not better um in terms of supporting uh weight gain um if you think about it we have to actively work to not gain weight over time right so as we get older our metabolism naturally slows a little bit um, we require, require less food. Um, we should be more active, but we do the opposite, right? We eat more as we get older and we slow down, uh, in terms of activity. So, um, no, we, we're, you know, we may be making some inroads in terms of seeing a leveling off of childhood obesity prevalence. Um, but my concern is, is that we're only going to see more adult obesity, simply because we've gone through the past two decades of increasing rates of childhood obesity. And we know that individuals who have obesity in childhood tend to have a higher propensity towards obesity in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So I, unfortunately I'm kind of pessimistic on that end. I do, I do think that we are starting to see a change in how we think about obesity, um, so, you know, again, thinking about obesity as a disease, not a character flaw, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about trying to expand options for treatment of obesity, uh, getting some better coverage of obesity treatment is not great at any, by any means, but we're at least having more conversations about that, seeing more medication options mm-hmm. available for obesity treatment. So these are positive developments. Um, and maybe one day, yeah, you'll go back to wet and wild and, and <laughs> everyone's fit. Yeah. yeah. And, and it'll be a totally different, you know, yeah. sort of experience. But um, unfortunately, this, the stats just don't bear that out. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking that one possibility is that 
people the the big the really big people are just staying home you know yeah well i mean it's it's gonna be totally uncomfortable for people they may they may feel like yeah i can go but i can't do anything right i I can't get on the slides or i can't i don't have the stamina to you know climb up to the the third level to get to the top of a slide um or i can you know get around in the park a little bit but i'm i'm just tired at the end of the day um so it's just yeah i'm just not willing to you know, put myself through that, um, and not enjoy it at the end of the day either. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I could totally see people just sort of self-selecting to not engage in something like that. Well, I'm not publishing that study, but <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, you know, back to social and economic determinants of health, you mentioned the 80% upwards of 80% for African-American women. I do know that, you know, we're, it seems like the conversation is getting uh, talked about more about what can we do to eliminate food deserts mm. and to uh, go out into the communities and and reinvigorate the ethos of home cooked meals and mm. preparing your own food and even growing your own food where you can and and those kinds of things and you know the this issue is so multifactorial that that but those kinds of things are at least being talked about now and we're, and we're supporting some of the efforts through Northwest AHEC and through Brenner Fit to do mm-hmm. the mobile cook, cooking kitchen and yeah. to really attract uh, minority uh, populations to come take part in those programs and really attack the obesity from the family perspective and encourage right. meal preparation together and sitting down and eating and, and you know reestablishing a healthy relationship with food um what are are there any efforts that your clinic is is doing to support that in the community or are you just too hyper focused in in what's acutely in front of you no so so we're trying to think about things more broadly um but we're we're taking a maybe a slightly different sort of angle here right so as you said this this is a multifaceted problem and you've got you know sort of your community level interventions and in strategies that need to be in place to really sort of support the um, maintenance of and development of healthy living, healthy lifestyles, right? So that's things like access to healthy foods and safe communities for physical activity and, um, you know, like you said, teaching people to cook a meal, right? Nobody's doing that anymore. And and so we have a over-reliance on um, – eating out, right? I saw some graphs, um, have a talk where I do have a, a slide from a couple of years ago that showed that, you know, I think as of 2017, we now spend more money on eating out than we do on groceries, right? In this country. And, and that's, that's not a good sign, mm-hmm. but that's probably a, a sign of the times, right? I mean, I, I don't know that that trend is going to abate, right? We, we probably are going to continue to move in that direction for lots of different reasons that we could we could discuss but um so so that's that's one side of the you know sort of elephant so to speak in terms of where where those things going um where we see our role at the weight management center is really on the side of um trying to expand access to treatment um in a in a medical space um because what we know is that um a lot of our patients don't have access to good treatment strategies, good treatment options, right? So, yeah, there's a lot that you can do in terms of 
trying to modify your 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 food environment and increase your physical activity. But a lot of people need, you know, good structured medical therapy. Um, it'd be like saying, you know what, you have heart disease um, and what we're going to do is really just focus on you, you know, eating a low fat diet and, you know, getting, you know, Y membership, but we're not going to give you a, you know, statin that we know, you know, can save lives. We're not going to, you know, tell you to take, um, um, you know, if, if you needed, you know, an aspirin or some other type of plate antiplatelet drug that again can save lives. Um, we're not going to give you a stent if you have chest pain. We're just going to say, hey, you it's know, it's all on you. <laughs> yeah, just keep, just keep, you know, working on, you know, trying to eat a Mediterranean diet. Right? <laughs> like, okay, well, we wouldn't do that mm. for heart disease, right? Because we know that those things can make a difference, and we need to give people access to treatment. So, so what we're doing is we're trying to work on that angle. Is saying, okay, we we've, we've got good therapy. We've got bariatric surgery that we know works. We've got good medical therapy that we know works. We've got multidisciplinary behavioral programming that we know works. We've got pharmacotherapy that we know it works. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these people can't get it because their insurance plans don't cover it. Or if they cover it, they cover it with very, you know, significant exceptions or barriers that people have to hoops people have to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's inadequate. Like you got a high deductible plan, you got to spend ten thousand dollars of your own money before you can get to, you know, the point where your insurance yeah, is not actually, very inclusive. Yes, yeah, is and so so that creates more of the disparity, right? So those disparities I talked about. It just fuels those disparities because the people who need the treatment the most are the back of the back of the line. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do is really sort of increase our role in advocacy for improving access to care and talking, you know, with people like you about, you know, what that problem looks like and giving people a sense of, hey, we need to be doing something different to understand this as a chronic disease and to, you know, make sure that people understand like, hey, there are medical solutions to this disease that work and are effective and we need to apply them long term and we need to think about how we do this differently so that instead of classifying obesity as a lifestyle disorder, we actually say, no, this is a medical disease and it deserves to be treated just the way heart disease and diabetes and cancer. And by the way, if you did a better job at treating obesity, you probably have less heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Right, right. Okay, so I'm a about to graduate high school student with an interest in healthcare. You sell me on becoming a doctor and a, in, in, in particular a uh, weight management specialist. Oh, that's an easy sell. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a real easy You ought to sell. see his smile right now. <laughs> So, you know, this this is cool, too, because we actually now have a rotation um, in our clinic for the medical students. Um, They they spend a few days with us, but um, we're also developing a fourth year medical student rotation um, where they spend several weeks with us. And we actually now have a, a fellowship in obesity medicine here at Wake Forest. We're like one of seven in the country now. Oh, wow. And uh, this is our second year of that of that program. Um, but, you know, here's here's the thing. If, if you want to go into healthcare and you want to impact people's lives, you want to you want to see a change, you want people to be happy to come see you. 
um, and be excited about the things that they're doing as a result of the help that you are providing. Like, there's nothing better than this, right? I mean, our patients are truly excited about coming in to talk with us and, and work with us. And it's it's amazing, like, when the residents come through, they say, man, this clinic is so different. Like, the patients are happy to be here. They're sharing, you know, what what's happening. They're celebrating, you know, their um, achievements. And um, even those who are struggling are feeling like, hey, I'm happy to be here because I'm getting support. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a different, it's a totally different vibe in terms of healthcare, any healthcare setting that I've ever been in. I think the other thing that's really neat about it is, is our team approach. It's, it's a, I don't, I don't just work with, you know, a bunch of other doctors. Um, I don't work on an island by myself. I have a group of people who help me do what I do. It's like our team is, is, is wonderful and I'm just a part of it. And it's that team effort that creates the outcomes that we get for our patients. Um, and that makes a difference in their experience. And that, and that's what they tell us is say, it's, you know, it's a great program because I know I'm getting support from lots of different people. Mm-hmm. And, um, being in that kind of environment is really reinforcing. It makes me want to come to work every day and be a part of that process, um, and contribute to that team. And then I think the last thing I would say is, you know, we're we're in a really interesting time in, in terms of obesity medicine where we're starting to get it. Like in the healthcare field, slowly but surely, people are starting to get the message of like, hey, this is a disease. We need to be treating it seriously. We need to develop training programs. We need to develop more treatment options. We need to create chronic disease models where we can engage patients long term. Um, we need to combine treatment strategies so it's not just medical or surgical, but both. How do we do that for complex obesity? Um, so it's it, there's a lot of really sort of interesting stuff that's happening at this time. And so why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Right. You know, <laughs> why, why, how could you turn that down? Can you describe some, if, if you're not interested in getting a four-year medical degree, what, what are some of the other roles that work on your team that, that oh, may yeah. be extenders that, that help you in that, in that, in that role? Yeah. You, you probably would be the smartest person if you didn't go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think there, there are lots of really great roles um, that people play on our team. So um, as part of our medical team, we also have nurse practitioners and physician assistants, um, and they're, they're right there in the trenches with, with our physicians, and we're, we're working together as you know partners in terms of providing the treatment for our patients. Um, and we've got some great folks who've been in this space for years now and well-trained and you know understand the surgical patient as well as the, the medical patient. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's something where, you know, you think about two years for PA school, um, after coming out of nursing, going in and doing a, a family nurse practitioner program, right. That's, that's a really fulfilling, um, career option for a lot of people. Um, we also have dietitians. Um, and so that's a, a registered dietitian. Um, usually pathway is like a nutrition undergraduate degree and then do a dietetic internship and um, get a master's degree. Typically, most programs are now adding a master's degree with that. Um, <clears throat> and our dietitians are really critical. And, you know, because we talked about the 80-20 piece, right? You know, diet is critical to what we're doing and having people who 
understand how to, you know, teach people about nutrition, um, help people tailor what they're doing to their, you know, personal taste, their cultural needs, um, their economic needs, um, all of those things, and and understand lots of different ways of eating um, in terms of putting foods together to get a specific type of uh, physiologic outcome. Like that's really important. So, um, our dietitians are really important part of the team. Exercise physiology is another critical part of the team that we haven't talked about, but our exercise physiologists, um, they really help us sort of put together the right exercise prescription. So it's, um, you have, we have exercise trainers as well who really work with the patients one-on-one in terms of, you know, actually supervising the exercise sessions, but the exercise physiologists are, you know, skilled at saying, okay, here's what we want to accomplish in terms of a fitness goal. And here are the steps that you need to take in order to be able to get that. Um, and so, you know, whether it's going to require you doing, you know, this amount of cardio plus this amount of strength training using these techniques and so forth and so on. That's what they, they help us put that together. And they do a lot of our testing for us as well. And so mm-hmm. a physical function testing, body composition testing, um, metabolic rate testing, VO2 max. So they help us put all of that together. Um, and then we talked earlier about the behavioral health team. So that that's, that's a range of different options, right? So you got folks who have PhDs in psychology, who, you know, sort of our faculty and help run the behavioral health program uh, in terms of general oversight and thinking about, you know, our strategies. And then we have our licensed counselors and uh, social workers as well who do counseling. And um, they're they're working with those patients one-on-one in terms of talking about healthy behaviors, but also doing uh, therapy with patients in terms of dealing with depression, anxiety, um, any number of other mental health related types of issues, grief counseling, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So lots of healthcare careers. Yes. <laughs> lots of options, all, all related to weight management. Um, and again, like these types of things, probably even 10 years ago were really rare. I mean, yes, there are some places that, you know, have, have generally always had that kind of multidisciplinary focus, but, um, we're, you know, we're continuing to grow and, and build. And I think, you know, our, our clinic definitely is a model mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. in terms of um, how you can put that together as a team. That's great. So I'm going to give you a magic wand. Mm-hmm. And the power of that magic wand is to eliminate one thing from the American diet. What are you eliminating? <laughs> eliminate one thing from the American diet and nobody complain about it. And Well, I don't know about that. but <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's not that magic. Not that, it's not, <laughs> not that magical. Um, you know, I, I tend to be on the side of um, eliminating sugar-sweetened beverage. Boom. I knew that was going to be it. Yeah, you, you knew that. <laughs> right. High fructose corn sweetener. <laughs> I, you know, I, I generally feel like um, in terms of the contribution to our you know, overall calorie intake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gradually grown over time and um, it, it serves as unnecessary calories with no nutritive value, right? There's, there's no nutritive benefit for that. Um, and so I think it's something that, you know, we could totally do without and no one would go ill or, 
you know, have some deficiency, right? There's no carbonated beverage deficiency that people suffer from. (laughs) That's right. Next time I ask that question, I'm going to say, aside from sugar sweetened (laughs) beverages, hydrogenated oils might be one. What are some others? Um, You know, I'm, Otherwise, I'm I'm really not that nihilistic on sort of like oh they're just you know people should never eat you know X right like I I I feel like well okay um, yeah we know trans fats for example right like that's a simple one you know there's no there's no value for trans fats and they're they're pretty atherogenic and built for shelf life not nutrition yeah yeah so that that's that's an easy one um, you know. Otherwise, right, I mean, you can always make an argument that um, there's going to be someone who finds some value or benefit or joy in having a little bit of something every now and then. Um, it's just a matter of, like, can can I interact with that food in a way that's reasonable or not? If I can't, then I need to just leave it alone. So I use the Oreo example all the time, right? If I can open up a sleeve of Oreos and have two, and I do that, you know, once every month, that's not a big deal. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, there's no nutritive value to Oreos. <laughs> uh, right. Dang, but, they taste good. <laughs> but they taste good, right? Yeah, and, a little and, reward now and then. And occasionally I, w- I might want to. But if I open up that sleeve and it's gone at the end of the day, then I probably shouldn't have Oreos. Right. I mean, I just, I just don't need them because I'm going to overconsume them. And so that's that's the way I think we probably need to think about most things. I I don't believe in a, you know, sort of sterile food environment. I don't I yeah, that's some people may need that for themselves in order to better control their eating habits and they may need at home to say, yeah, I'm just not going to ever have any potato chips around. I'm not going to have any um you know, snack foods around otherwise. And the only things that I have that are shelf stable are things that are, you know, beans or, you know, canned vegetables or whatever like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to have anything else like that because otherwise I know I would get into it. Um, And everybody's going to be a little bit different. You know, some people can buy a pint of ice cream and it'll last for a month. Some people buy a pint of ice cream and it lasts for the day. <laughs> or 15 minutes. Or 15 minutes, right, <laughs> for that show, you know. Um, and so, you know, to me, it, I, I don't say that foods are inherently good or bad. I think it's all in what you end up doing with it. And so um, if, if, if I could, you know, do something with that wand that changes the food environment in a significant way, I would change the balance of how we promote and um, – advertise things that are less helpful, mm-hmm. right? So I would, you know, say like, yeah, there's no re- reason to have commercials for candy and junk food and, you know, all those other things. Yeah. Um, we should price them differently. We yeah. should, or we should at least subsidize the cost of helpful foods um, mm-hmm. to make them more competitive um, compared to less helpful foods. Um and, and I, you know, I can get on a soapbox about how we've sort of made helpfulness a commodity, right? It's the sort of taking the idea that in order to be healthy, you have to be, you know, well off. Um, and it didn't used to be that way in terms of being able to afford reasonable 
food options. And, and I think people still can afford reasonable food options, but it's harder to do so. And it's in a competitive environment. So you got a lot of other things that are competing for your attention. When you go in the grocery store, it's not that apples are now, you know, $5 per apple. Sure. I'm sure you can find some somewhere, you know, <laughs> that might cost that much, but you can still get a bag of apples for a couple bucks. Mm-hmm. Right. But you can also get two packs of Oreos for the same price. Right. And people will value those Oreos over that bag of apples mm-hmm. differently, right? Because mm-hmm. it does something different for them. And so I think that's that's what, what we're often dealing with is helping people understand, um, yeah, this this these things are just out-competing that. I mean, when's the last time you saw a coupon for, for broccoli? But there's a coupon every week for, you know, some sugary cereal or – you know, some other type of, you know, snack food or, or potato chips or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and again, when you're looking to sort of fill out a lunchbox, you can do that much easily, much more easily with a couple pieces of bread and bologna and a, and a bag of chips mm-hmm. than you can with putting together a reasonable meal otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, I, th- I think that's, that's where I see our biggest challenge often. Okay. Um, what role or maybe what role now and what role do you see in the future do uh, personal health wearables come into play? I know Apple just had a big announcement a couple of days ago and they had a lot of their Apple health is tied to their Apple watch, which costs what, 600 bucks or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, but, but in your clinic, are you using them now to monitor steps or anything else? And, and, and do you see a role of that playing for, for, for your clinic? Yeah, no, we, we see a significant role for that, and um, we use them now <clears throat> in in what we call remote patient monitoring, and I see that as being kind of our next evolution for our program is really kind of integrating more technology into what we do. So what we do now is we have a system that we call OnTrack, and it's a remote patient monitoring system that centers around an app that you get as you enter the program. And in that application, it's on your phone or on your desktop, um, you can record all your food intake. And then if you have a device, an activity monitoring device like a Fitbit or I have a Garmin or you have Apple, you know, um, watch, you can connect that to the app. Mm -hmm. And so all your steps and activity information comes in there. Um, if it's monitoring your sleep, it'll, you know, track that as well. And then <clears throat> patients can, um, patients also get a scale, a digital scale um, that they take home. And that scale is connect- connected to the cellular network. So they don't have to have Wi-Fi at home. Mm-hmm. They take it home and they step on the scale. And every time they step on the scale, it goes into the app as well. Mm-hmm. And so everyone in the clinic, all the providers can see that person's information in our portal. Mm-hmm. Um, so every time they put information into the app, it aggregates and we can see all of that. And that's a central part of what allows us to do um, things like virtual visits. So we can do a lot of our programming. A lot of the visits that we do can be done virtually. And that's you in your office or at home or at work um, on a phone or an iPad or tablet, um, just some connected device with a camera on it. And I'm in the clinic and I'm on my iPad and we can connect by video, have a visit. I can see all the information that you've got in your on-track system. 
and we can use that information to make you know determination about what your next steps in your program and we go from there uh, that's got to be a helpful tool i mean what's not being measured is not being managed so. there you go that's right there you go so yeah so we use that now and and we want to take that to the next level with um some things that we're sort of in the works and planning on in terms of you know sort of incorporating some analytics and using some automated feedback systems to be able to help people progress in their treatment goals based on the information that we're acquiring from them. Um, so yeah, we, we're really big on technology and integrating that into our treatment programs to really help our patients. And I think that does a few different things. It decreases the burden on the patient in terms of just having to come into the clinic so often and, and, you know, get that feedback in person. Uh, we can do that remotely now. I think it gives us better feedback um, so that, you know, if we can get some information passively or in real time um, or see just more information, we can incorporate that. Right? It's really nice for me to be able to see, like, I didn't see you, you know, uh, over the past two weeks. Right. So I saw you two weeks ago. This is what your weight was. This is what it is now. But in between what happened, I don't know. Yeah. Well, now if you're stepping on a scale every day, I can see that. And that correlates with the story that you're telling me about, well, this weekend was tough and, you know, I gained a couple pounds, but then I got it back down. And, you mm -hmm. know, I, so I can see all of that. And that, that really helps to give me a better sense of, you know, how to guide you in terms of advice. Yeah. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, uh, for listeners, you can find more about the uh, Weight Management Clinic and Dr. Ard, uh, A-R-D. Just go to wakehealth.edu and type that in and you'll learn all about it. So thanks again for coming today and I hope to have you back sometime. Yeah, glad to do it. Thank you.